Good morning. Missiles in Poland, but are they from Russia? Is NATO's Article 5 a menace to peace? Border chaos and the world population surpasses 8 billion. 2 billion more on the way. But can the earth handle it? And in the United States, a political prisoner heads home. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday morning, November 16th, 2022. Kyiv announced Tuesday Russia has targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure in a massive missile attack. It comes a day after President Volodymyr Zelensky set conditions for peace talks with Russia that Moscow called unrealistic and inadequate. Zelensky said in an emergency address on Tuesday that Russian forces launched 85 missile strikes at Ukraine. Authorities reported half of Kyiv residents and up to 80% of people living in the western Ukrainian city of Lvov were without electricity in the wake of the strikes. Zelensky also blamed Russia for an explosion believed to be caused by a missile inside of Poland near the Ukraine border. According to Polish media, at least two people died in the explosion. In a statement, the Pentagon says it couldn't corroborate the reports a missile had struck the Polish border town. Russia denied any responsibility, and President Joe Biden said on Tuesday it was unlikely the missile came from Russia. And the moment when the world had come together at the G20, to urge de-escalation, Russia continues to, uh, has chosen to escalate in Ukraine while we're meeting. I mean, there were scores and scores of attack, missile attacks into Western Ukraine. We support Ukraine fully in this moment, and we have, uh, we have since the start this conflict, we're going to continue to do whatever it takes to give them the capacity to defend themselves. Mr. President, is it too early to say whether this missile was fired from Russia? There is preliminary information that contests that. I don't want to say that till we completely investigate. But it, it is, uh, I, 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 it's unlikely in the minds of the trajectory that it was fired from Russia. But we'll, we'll see. NATO has invoked Article 4 of the NATO Charter. That calls for a meeting of principals to discuss further action. Article 5 of the Treaty Organization's Charter provides that if a NATO member is attacked, each of the alliance's 30 members will consider it an attack on all. Article 5 has been invoked only once on September 11, 2001. The Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is Anatole Levin. He's written several books on Russia. Levin says the NATO Charter leaves the definition of an attack open to interpretation. Article 5 says that an attack on one member will be considered an attack on all, but it doesn't say quite what kind of attack. So it was introduced, of course, to make sure that the Soviet Union couldn't pick off one NATO member after another individually and to ensure that other NATO countries, and especially, of course, the United States, would come to their aid. During the Cold War, there was always that nagging question whether America would in fact not just risk but ensure the nuclear annihilation of America by firing a nuclear missile into the Soviet Union if the Soviet Union attacked in Europe. This is what the concern about a Russian escalation to the use of nuclear missiles 
really involves because NATO and the US have threatened that if Russia uses one, then the NATO air forces will destroy the Russian army in Ukraine. But then, of course, Russia will bombard bases in Poland, um, possibly even with tactical nuclear weapons. And then we won't be on the brink. We will actually be over the brink when it comes to nuclear war. And it's just a question of whether we'll be able to stop ourselves or will, in fact, be the end. Just the idea of a gigantic war that kills tens of millions of people starts because this chain of alliances, one that led to another, that sort of brought everybody involved in the war before they knew what happened. Is that possible today? I think it's possible. Russians say to me that if Ukraine looks as if it's going to recapture Crimea and the Russian naval base of Sevastopol, then they say Russia should use nuclear weapons. They say, you know, America would use nuclear weapons to defend Hawaii and Russians should do the same. That is the moment when things would become really dangerous. There is just one possibility, though, which was raised in an article for the Financial Times a few days ago, which is that rather than firing a tactical nuclear weapon on the ground, Russia might explode one in in a space to send an electromagnetic pulse to knock out satellites and Ukrainian communications. Now, that would be a drastic escalation, and of course it would do terrific damage. It wouldn't involve destroyed towns and slaughtered people on the ground, so it wouldn't perhaps attract the same level of moral shame to Russia, which using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine would do. There is a ray of hope. There's this strange meeting in Ankara that nobody wants to talk about going on right now. Could there be something going on right now? Something is beginning to happen. If you look at statements from General Milley, it's known that Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, has always personally been a moderate and pragmatist in his attitude to Russia. So I think the Biden administration is beginning to lay the groundwork for a possible agreement. And then there have been statements, especially from the CIA, saying that, you know, American support for Ukraine is not completely unconditional. Then again, you know, the Biden administration has engaged in so much language of unconditional support for Ukraine that it will be quite, you know, politically and emotionally difficult for it to row back on that. What do you think a an agreement might look like? What we're talking about is now a ceasefire that would leave Russia in provisional control of actually, I mean, some pretty small areas of eastern mm-hmm. Ukraine. Uh, of course, the Ukrainians and, and we would never agree legally Russia could keep this. But I think at some point it's fairly likely, but only, of course, if the Ukrainian attacks fail and also if Ukraine suffers very heavy casualties. Ukraine is less than a third the size of Russia, so proportionally speaking, Ukraine has suffered much heavier casualties. Yes. If we want to keep this war going and not in the end reach an agreement with Russia, then we are going to have to support Ukraine massively for all foreseeable time. You are talking about colossal financial and military aid for Ukraine indefinitely. And I do wonder, especially if the economic crisis deepens, whether the American and European publics in the end will have the stomach for that. Anatole Levin is Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. In the Russian missile attacks, at least a dozen regions reported power outages affecting cities that together have millions of people. Almost half of Kyiv lost power.
Meanwhile, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas faced hostile questions about the southern border Tuesday. The hearing before the House Homeland Security Committee was called to discuss worldwide threats to the United States. Among the witnesses was FBI Director Christopher Wray. Nevertheless, it was Secretary Mayorkas who attracted most of the attention. Representative Clay Higgins, a Louisiana Republican, was most aggressive, apparently laying the groundwork for charges against Mayorkas. Have you used your authority to suppress exculpatory evidence presented by CBP agents who've come under public attack and condemnation by you and the Biden administration? Two points, if I may, Congressman. Number one, in response to your second question, I don't even know what you're referring to. And with, with respect to your first I'll question, take that as that you're on the record as saying no, that you have not used your authority to suppress exculpatory evidence. If you're, if you're an honorable man, then obviously you should be able to say no to that. Who would suppress exculpatory evidence? Is your answer no? I don't even know what you're referring to, Congressman. You will. And, and if I may, in Secretary Mayorkas, have you used your authority to retaliate against DHS agents who served on special details during the Trump administration, agents identified by your administration as conservatives or Trump supporters? Once again, Congressman, I don't even know what you're referring to. You're before Congress. I'm going to take that as a no. Some Republicans say they want to impeach Mayorkas, although there are no criminal charges against the cabinet secretary. The main criticism? Mayorkas has allegedly punished conservative supporters of Donald Trump. In related news... Climate change in Central America has been blamed for the economic collapse in the region. A severe drought has already driven thousands to the United States. That's raised concerns of a flood of migrants from overcrowded regions into the U.S. Population has been an issue for economists over the centuries. It was generally believed a century ago that population would outgrow food and cause a collapse of civilization. Those beliefs were proven wrong as advances in medicine and agriculture allowed people to live longer and healthier lives. But a side effect is that as a country becomes richer and more urban, its birth rates begin to fall. The phenomenon was on display Tuesday as the United Nations announced the Earth's population had passed 8 billion. To give you some perspective, in 1804, the globe hosted its first billion residents. It took a century to double to 2 billion, and the global population has grown from 7 to 8 billion in only the past 11 years. Yet, even as regions like Africa see the world's fastest growing population, the populations of China with 1.5 billion people Europe and the United States are actually beginning to fall as their residents grow older. The director of the Population Division of the Department of Economic and Social Affairs of the United Nations is John Wilmoth. He says population growth has been generally good for humanity, adding the driving force has been increasing freedom for women. The global population has, you know, different parts of the world have grown rapidly at different points in time. There was a there was a period when the European population was growing much more rapidly than the rest of the world, and, and the European population then became a larger percentage of the total. Uh, and, and now it's other parts of the world that are growing, and the percentage uh, in Europe is going back to where it was before and, and maybe falling below that. I think, in fact, it is falling below where it was uh, historically, because the growth in other parts of the world has been more rapid, and it's more and more... It's, it, it's, generating more additional population. The whole world is going through a process of demographic transition. 
which is a shift towards longer lives and smaller families. This has been happening all over the world. There's nothing unique about what's happening now in Africa. It's a process that happened more than a century ago in Europe and North America. What we know about the way the population is going now that is independent of all these political views that have tended to make it look something, you know, twist the issue to make it look like this or that, depending on their point of view, their political point of view. Population growth results from something that's fundamentally good. That's the reduction of human mortality and the increase of life expectancy. That's why the human population started growing rapidly. Then what causes the growth to slow down as it has done in Europe and North America and other places that went through this transition earlier? Well, that, of course, is the reduction in the birth rate. That's the second part of the demographic transition. The first part is the reduction of mortality. The second part is the reduction of fertility. But usually the, the reduction in fertility lags behind the reduction in mortality. So there's a period of rapid growth in between. And so this demographic transition ultimately has two major impacts. One is growth, a period of rapid growth. And second, it produces at the end of that a population that's much older on average uh, than prior to this whole transition. We see that in countries like the US and Europe and Japan. We now have slow growing populations or populations that are declining in size, even in some cases. And they're also much older, much more concentrated, say above age 65 than they were in the past. What is the future of the world? Is it gonna be some world where we just never get to be alone anymore? You know, look, a lot of that has to do with choices about how people settle in cities. And there are advantages where people do live closer to each other. Um, there's a lot of space on the earth if, if people wanted to spread out more. I'm not sure that living in cities with lots of people around is, is necessarily a bad thing, partly what you're used to. I don't think we can talk about, you know, an ideal population size or an ideal fertility rate or anything like that. What matters is the speed of change. That's what presents a challenge to humanity is the rapid growth of the population and making the necessary adjustments in light of that growth. In some cases, the rapid aging of populations where there are adjustments necessary in terms of how the generations support each other and interact. And in both cases, I, I think we're very much capable of adjusting to the changes if they come somewhat slowly. But when they're happening rather rapidly, when populations are doubling in a period of 30 years, in some cases, if you have 2% growth, the population doubles roughly every 35 years. That's very rapid change, and it's more difficult to accommodate. But if it's growing more slowly, I'm not sure there's really a problem or an ultimate limit that we have to worry about. It's not the inputs to our consumption. The inputs, like the raw materials, we are not running out of those. The problem is what are the after effects of all that consumption? What we pump out into the atmosphere in terms of greenhouse right. gases, for the example. The garbage. You mean the garbage, man? The, the sanitation? It's the garbage. It's the garbage. Exactly. It's a garbage problem. It's not a problem of inputs. We will you know, find the oil or the energy sources and the, the means of growing the food. Humans are very clever that way. And I, I do believe that we will continue to innovate and find ways to keep a larger population going uh, and healthy, healthier than it's been in the past, probably. The question is, what about these impacts on the global environment and, and what, what that may bring? John Wilmoth is director of the Population Division of the Department of Economic and Social Affairs of the United Nations. 
In more national news, former President Trump was the elephant in the room during today's hearing of the House Homeland Security Committee on threats to the United States. Conservative Louisiana Representative Clay Higgins took a moment from playing Secretary Mayorkas about the border to lay into FBI Director Christopher Wray about the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when Even we are. Even now, because that's what may you told I, us two years ago. May I finish? Uh, about when we do and do not, and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, but to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. The ongoing drama left in the wake of former President Trump's loss to Joe Biden in 2020 has been playing out for two years as the country waited for the inevitable, Trump's announcement he would run for re-election against Biden in 2024. He made the announcement at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida on Tuesday night. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Trump's speech was tamer than usual, avoiding name-calling. Nevertheless, he painted a picture of a country falling apart and in dire need of a strongman like Trump. He's been testing one of his issues voters are sure to hear more of, his call for a same-day death penalty for drug dealers. What is a quick trial? That's where, if you get caught dealing drugs, you have an immediate and quick trial, and by the end of the day, you're executed. That's a terrible thing. But they have no drug problem. The only drug problem they have is they make the fentanyl that comes into our country, and I had him stopping it. And then when I was gone, nobody ever mentioned it to him again. We were stopping it. That was way down, that number. But they send it in. But they don't have a drug problem. Uh, other countries, like Singapore, has no drug problem. No drug, you ask them. They don't even know what you're talking about when they say drug problem. They don't even know what you're talking about. They have no drug problem. Now, why should they sell there and risk their lives every time they sell when they can come to the United States and nobody even cares? They can do whatever they want to do and become rich. It's a disgrace. So if you want to get rid of that and also bring down your level of crime, probably 75 or 80 percent, that's the only answer. The racism in Trump's call is evident to folks who work to help drug users, many who sell drugs too, to support their habits. Although black and white Americans use drugs at similar rates, the vast majority of people punished are black. A black liberation leader who was deeply involved in driving heroin from the black community in the 1970s is now facing release after more than 35 years in prison. On Thursday, the U.S. Parole Commission confirmed Dr. Matuli Shakur the stepfather of rapper Tupac Shakur and husband of Asada Shakur, who is in exile in Cuba, 
will be released. He has bone marrow cancer, and doctors say he has less than six months to live. Shakur was a member of the Black Nationalist Organization, Republic of New Africa. He was a renowned acupuncturist and was involved in bringing health care to residents of the South Bronx in the 1970s. He'd been charged with conspiracy alongside a group that robbed a Brinks armored car in 1981, in which a guard and two police officers were killed. A supporter of Shakur, a prison inmate at one time himself, now chairman of the new Black Panther Party in Newark, New Jersey, is Shaka Zulu. He spoke with the news about Shakur and other black liberation fighters who were still in prison. He went to prison because Asada Shakur was being tortured. Asada Shakur was being deliberately, deliberately suffering a slow death while in prison. And I think Matula Shakur and the Revolutionary Armed Task Force utilized the same principle that other revolutionary groups around the world use, which is never leave a comrade behind. He was searching, he was striving, he was looking for something uh, that he could attribute his mind, body, and soul to. Alcapuncture in the Bronx, the detox center where they were working at, gave him that initiative, gave him that purpose. He began to administer acupuncture before it became popular. Two brothers and sisters that was on drugs, mostly on heroin. And we remember a pamphlet came out at the time from the Black Panther Party called Dope is Genocide. And Dr. Matula Shakur and other comrades were addressing that real reality because Vietnam was bringing in all kinds of drugs. And it was weakening, diffusing the revolutionary upsurge. You know, if a man is on dope, not only is there no hope, but he's not focused on dealing with the day-to-day issues of his life because he's distracted. He's in a narco stupor. And so Matula Shakur and them sort to change the ethical and moral reality of those brothers and sisters that was on drugs and turn them into revolutionaries or freedom fighters or simply people concerned about doing something for our community. So in the early 70s, Dr. Matunu Shakur, a lot of his work was focused on building the Republic of New Africa in Jackson, Mississippi, which was their headquarters. And over time, because he saw his comrades being shot down in the streets, you got to remember, comrade, in 1969, we lost 27 Panthers. One year, one year, 27 Panthers, two Cointel Pro. They were shot down in the street. Fred Hampton, shot in the sleep. So comrades was looking for a way to respond to this, this naked, brutal aggression. Matulu Shakur engaged in revolutionary armed struggle to resist not only the attacks of the oppressor, but to ultimately move us closer to freedom. You know, and that's the thing people don't understand. They think just because you defend yourself in a political way, it's not attached to objectives of freedom. But when Matulu and the Revolutionary Armed Task Force they would go into drug dealer houses. I'm talking about big time drug dealers. They would take all the cocaine and they would bring it in the middle of the street. They would have a megaphone and they would tell the people this cocaine only can lead to the death of our community. And they would pour it down uh, sewage. And they did this repeatedly. And so the police didn't like this. You know, they wanted us on drugs. They wanted us 
discombobulated. They wanted us weak. Remember, comrade, you had uh, a thousand different groups in the street. You had Vietnam War. You had the Nation of Islam. You had SNCC. You had the Black Panther Party, the Republic of New Africa. You had the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You had Revolutionary Armed Movement. The streets was on fire. Babylon was burning. When H. Rap Brown or Jamil Alameen said in Maryland, let it burn, baby, let it burn. Literally, they meant that in every state in the United States. And that was the militant upsurge that Matulu Shakur represented. So him being free today is not a victory. It's not a moment to celebrate because they let political prisoners out only to die tomorrow, only to die two days later. And I'm not being hyperbole. Marilyn Buck came home. She died a month later from cancer. Albert Wilfox out of the Angola Three. They let him out. He died later on that night. They let out Russell Maroon Schultz. He died a week later. So this ain't no victory. A victory is getting political prisoners out of prison when they could participate in a holistic manner in the freedom of their struggle. What political prisoners around the world get out of prison only to die a few hours later? Think about it. Nelson Mandela didn't die a few hours later. So that's all I'm saying to you, Conrad. It's not a victory. We're glad he's home. We have to do more to make sure they get out before they die. Chairman Shaka Zulu of the New Black Panther Party in Newark, New Jersey. In related news, Mumia Abu-Jamal, himself in prison for decades as a political prisoner for actions during the black liberation struggles of the 1970s and 80s, is petitioning a Pennsylvania court for a new trial after the discovery of fresh evidence casting doubt on his conviction. The former Black Panther and radical journalist is 68 and has long struggled with serious heart conditions and other health problems. He was moved off death row in 2011, but is being held on life without parole. The new documents seem to show the government's chief witness was more concerned about getting paid for his testimony than the truth of the story he told. Defense lawyers say there's more hidden evidence that's still missing in the case. And that's some of the news for Wednesday morning, November 16, 2022. The news is written and produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>